Luke 19, verse 28. It says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus had just given the parable of the ten minas where the parable, in the parable he said that he was a nobleman, basically, that was going away to a faraway place to be crowned king and that he was coming back. And he would call everyone to an account on that day when he comes back. And we were exhorted as true followers of Jesus Christ to take the treasure that he has given us, the time, the talent, the treasure, uh, the gospel that has been given to us, that has been entrusted to us, and to put it in work, to put it to work until he comes, or as the King James Version says, occupy until I come. And so what a challenge that was. And so after he had said this, kind of clarifying what is kingdom, what was about to happen to the people, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So now having left Jericho in the Jericho Valley or or in the Jordan Valley there, which is 846 feet below sea level, he ascended 15 15 miles or so up the windy roads through the hills towards Jerusalem, which is 2,400, 2,500 feet above sea level. And so he's making this windy uh, way up. And as Jesus made this ascent into Jerusalem uh, for this final time before his death on the cross, he and his disciples would have been singing the Psalms of Ascent. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134, and so they would have been singing in anticipation of coming into Jerusalem. And so as the singing is happening, as multitudes uh, are, are going and anticipating seeing that city, uh, as they crested the East Hill and the temple, it would be right over the top there that they would now view this temple in the city of Jerusalem as they come over this hill of the Mount of Olives and they would see where the sacrifices were made there, anticipating that time when they went over the top. Historians say that at the time, at this time, uh, there were around eighty to 100,000 people living in Jerusalem. And during the Feast of the Passover, which was one of the feasts that they were required to observe, all the Jews from all the lands around would come and make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And, and the city would swell from, uh, from eighty to 100,000 or whatever it is, their citizens, to over 4 million. And so it would just be flooded with people who are visiting. And so the city was completely packed with Jews from all over the place to observe the Passover, uh, the Passover, which was reminding them of an event that happened 1,500 years earlier about there. When they had left Egypt, God had uh, miraculously uh, delivered them out of the hands of the bondage of the slavery of Egypt, which is a, which is a picture and a type of the world and of sin. And they were thinking of that particular day of the Passover when God sent the destroyer through the cities of of Egypt, and whoever did not have the blood of a lamb on their doorpost, the firstborn of their children would die. And so the nation was focused on on an event that happened, you know, 1,200, 1,300 years prior. They did not know that that event that they were looking back towards was foreshadowing an event that the fulfillment of that event was going to happen that week in their midst, where the Lamb of God, chosen before the foundation of earth, was slain, and that His blood would cover the sins of all who believe, that the judgment of God would pass over those who believe in faith upon the Son of Christ, uh, the Son of God. And so that was what was going on. They were all focused on this event. 
And it says in verse, nine, uh, verse 29, as he approached, as Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany at a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go over to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. I mean, obviously. Those who were sent ahead and went found it just as, they had, uh, just as he had told them. And they were unti- as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And so the, the two villages of Bethpage and Bethany were two miles east of Jerusalem on a hill called the Mount of Olives. How many of you have heard of the term Mount of Olives, right? And you're thinking, okay, what is this place? Well, Bethpage and Bethany are on the, what would be the east side of the Mount of Olives. As you pass them, you would pass over the crest of a hill and you would come to the top of Mount of Olives looking down into this valley and then into the city of Jerusalem ahead of you. And so as they'd be singing these songs that come up and over the mountain and there would be Jerusalem and it's all, all its glory. And as they looked west across the valley, that valley you see in front of the Jerusalem is there. Just off to the right is the Temple Mount, which is currently occupied by the Aqsala Mosque. But right where that wall is on top of that used to set the old temple. And uh, it's interesting, the jo- Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived just after Christ, around 37 AD to 100 AD, said that you could stand on the Mount of Olives and look down and see the east gate. And if the east gate were open, you could see through there into the temple courts and directly into the gates of the temple. And if the gates of the temple were opened, you could see into the holy place. And theoretically, if the Holy of Holies wasn't blocked, you could see straight into the Holy of Holies. So there's a straight shot. And we know that prophecy says that when Christ comes back, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. That The Mount of Olives is going to be split from left to right. Uh, it, well, from, from north to south, it's going to be split, and, and he will proceed into the king, and into, into the throne room, so to speak, into the Holy of Holies. So in the time of Christ, there were these villages of Bethpage and Bethany on the east side, before you come over the hill, and that is where Jesus is. And when Jesus visited Jerusalem quite often, he stayed there in Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember that? John 11, 1. John's gospel in John 12, verse 1, tells us that Jesus entered Bethany on a Saturday before the Passover. So Jesus is coming into town, into Bethany on a Saturday. He will be crucified that Friday. Passover is a Saturday, and then Sunday he will rise again. And so the following Thursday through Friday is that basically that Thursday evening through Friday day because Jewish days are different would be what the Passover is. Matthew's gospel tells us the next day. So he enters in Bethany on a Saturday. On Sunday, the, uh, Matthew's gospel tells us that he attended a dinner in his honor at the home of Simon the leper. That's Matthew 26, verse 6 through 13. And it would be the next day Monday that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, not Palm Sunday, Palm Monday. I know, it's like shocking. And that would begin the Passion Week in which Jesus would eventually be betrayed, crucified, and then rise again. Luke spends the next several chapters walking us through what we call Passion Week. It will be Passion Months for us. 
And so as Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, he asked two of his disciples to enter into the village ahead of him, get the colt that had never been ridden, and bring, him, bring it to him. Now, what is the significance of that? Why does Jesus tell him to do that? Uh, 500 years earlier, Zechariah the prophet, in Zechariah 9.9, he prophesied about this. He said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so 500 years before this very day that we're reading about, the prophet said that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, humbly, in effect declaring himself to be the Messiah, to be the king. And Jesus, it's interesting enough, up until this point, he had plenty of opportunities to publicly declare that he was Messiah. Imagine if you had all that power and all the things that you were doing and all the scriptures that lined up from it. I mean, there would be a PR campaign like no one had ever seen happening on the scene if one of us were in charge of that. But that's not the case. In Matthew 16, 20, he ordered that his disciples tell, not tell anybody that he was the Messiah when they found out, when they realized it, when they came to the realization that he was truly the Messiah. In John 6, 14 through 15, after Jesus fed the 5,000 miraculously, Jesus knew that the people were going to forcibly take him and make him king. That's the impact he was having upon people. Instead, it says that he withdrew by himself to a mountain by himself. But now it was his time. He was quite often telling people, it is not yet my time. It is not yet my time. And now it is his time to declare that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And he's doing it according to the prophecies. And he's, walking in, or he's riding into Jerusalem as a lowly king. He was the Messiah, the chosen one. That's what Messiah means. The scriptures might, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, the gospel says. And I also find it interesting as well, and not by coincidence, that the 10th day, it was the 10th day of Nisan, uh, which, which was significant in the law of Moses. In Exodus 12, 2 through 6, it says that the Passover lambs were to be chosen on that day and slaughtered on that Friday, on that Passover Christ, God's chosen one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the Messiah, the chosen one, entered Jerusalem, not to be crowned with a royal crown, but to be crowned with a crown of thorns. He didn't come on a horse, which most kings would do, a victorious, triumphant war horse. And he came on a donkey, a symbol of peace. Kings would come into a village if they meant peace on a, on a donkey, not on a warhouse. Guess what he's coming back on next time? He's coming back on the horse. He will return on a war horse, but this time he came peacefully, offering peace to all who would believe so that we could avoid the destruction that would come. I wouldn't have done it that way. How marvelous he is. Aren't you glad he came peacefully 
And he rides into your life this morning still on that donkey of peace, not as a war horse, not as a warrior to take you over, but to humbly offer to you salvation. Wow. So verse 35, they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Remember, this had been gathering. People had seen the miracles. All these things are happening. There's this anticipation. You saw it in Jericho that that this, this is probably the Messiah. And they're all converging upon Jerusalem. Millions of people are packing into the city. They're going up the road. So this is not, I don't think this is 10 people. There's a lot of people who had seen and heard and experienced what Christ had done. And when they came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, so they're coming down now, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And so there's a crowd that begins to put their cloaks on the, on the road like a royal carpet before a king. And, and, and the other gospels talk about how they put palms, palm branches in front of him as well. That's where we get Palm Sunday from, although now everybody knows it's Palm Monday. They've been praising God joyfully, the disciples did, uh, for, for the for the miracles they had seen. Think about it. The demons that had been cast out of people, the incurable diseases cured. The dead were raised. The power of God was present in Jesus Christ. The multitudes were fed. Just a couple weeks earlier, Lazarus, right up the hill, had been raised from the dead and right in front of Everybody is amazing. And, and there's just this culmination of praise that's happening. They cried out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118, 26. This is a messianic psalm. They were declaring that Jesus was the Messiah coming with the authority of God. And of course, in their minds, what are they expecting to happen shortly? He's going to walk into, Jesus, into Jerusalem and sit down on the throne and take over. And Matthew's gospel tells us that they cried out, Hosanna, which means save now. Now is the time. Rescue us. Save now. And although the crowds were crying out, they were not crying out that God would save them from their sin, but from the Romans. They were crying out that God would save them from the Romans. And Luke tells us they cried out, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, right? The thinking was that God couldn't possibly be at peace until the enemies of the Jews were expelled by the Messiah. And so now there could be peace in heaven. So Jesus is proceeding down the Mount of Olives on a donkey, being worshipped by his disciples, praised by the people. Matthew tells us those palm branches were put down before him in a path of the cloaks were there. And so this is a, this humble coronation of the king as he goes down. And the crowds were in Uh, And in the crowds, there were Pharisees. And this is where the story turns from praise to sorrow. The mood dramatically shifts here. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
The stones will cry out. You know, it's quite possible that Jesus was just saying that what is happening is ordained by God. The Messiah is entering into Jerusalem, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. They will praise me no matter what. That is, I think, just the the flat-out interpretation as you look at that. Others have said that this possibly, because you get into the Greek grammar and all that stuff, the idea that is the tense of the words, the stones will cry out. And the idea is that when they do become quiet, when people cease to praise him, the, the stones themselves will be a testimony of judgment towards the people. That might be a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of looking into things, but people are, are searching for the meaning of this. And we'll talk about more in depth what that means as the temple is destroyed and the stones are, not, are, le- are left, not one is left on another but the stones that would bear witness to the judgment of God. Either way, the Pharisees always tried to keep and to quell uh, the praises from, from God. They tried to make sure that people did not worship God except for their ascribed way, and Jesus was breaking the mold there. You know, just as a little side note, when I was in Jerusalem, I made sure to pick up one of those rocks to remind me that God will be praised with or without me. And do I want to be in on the blessing? You know, do I want to be on the blessing? It's a reminder. Verse 41, and as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Verse 41 says that when Jesus saw the city, He wept over it. He wept over it. There are two places in the the New Testament where Jesus is recorded as weeping. One is in John chapter 11 when Jesus weeps over Lazarus. And that weeping was more of a deep welling, and I'm going off of what what the Greek words mean, but it's a deep sorrow that starts to build up and well out and just trickle so that if you were not looking at the person directly, you wouldn't be able to tell that they were crying. You ever seen that before? Someone's kind of watching a movie and they're just kind of overwhelmed and they're just kind of like, okay, don't look at me. It comes down, you know? That was similar. It was, it was just a controlled trickle, you know, but it was there. It was a deep sorrow that was welling up. That is not the word used here. That is not the word here. It's the other word which is used here that has the idea that Jesus was becoming undone. He was agonizing and sobbing loudly, visibly shaken, mourning deeply to where all could see. That's what was going on over Jerusalem when he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The crowds were cheering, but they missed it. They did not recognize what was about to happen. They didn't see it. They desired a crown. They did not desire a cross. 
And Jesus knew that they would reject him as a nation and as a result would fall under the judgment of God as a nation. And Jesus saw what would become of the people of God who missed it, who called themselves by his name. And in verse 43, Jesus, mourning and weeping, starts to speak out what would happen to them in a prophetic Word. He says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. So Jesus is just losing it as he sees what is going to happen to the city and the people in it, the very place where God is supposed to be worshipped, how it will be absolutely decimated in 70 AD at the hands of Titus, the Roman general who went on to be ultimately the emperor. And Jesus lays out what happened. He said there would be an embankment. They would be surrounded, hemmed in on every side. There was a revolt that started in, in 60, like 66 or something like that, 66 AD by the Jews. And in turn, the Romans started to lay siege to Jerusalem. And just to give you a picture of how bad it was, after a while when food began getting scarce and the dams were destroyed and all these types of things, Jews began to escape the city looking for food and about 500 people per day were being crucified. So you just imagine that around the city, 500 people per day being crucified. The Romans cut down all the trees within 15 kilometers of the city. And they were cut down, and within a period of around three days, the city was surrounded by an eight-kilometer-long palisade. They were hemmed in on every side. The death rate within the city increased to where the valleys on the outside of the city's wall, the valley you saw that went down, all that all around were filled with corpses. It was estimated 115,880 by someone inside the city who, who was keep, keeping count of what actually how many people had died so far at that point. So they would just throw them over the wall. Josephus records how people were so hungry that people were breaking into houses three or four times in an hour, the same house. There was just madness going on. They kept, like, like animals, they just kept breaking into the same house thinking something had cha- would change and it wouldn't. They were eating their, the leather off their shoes. They were eating their belts. They were eating their clothes. They were eating sandals. They were taking tufts of grass and selling it for like incredible amounts of money. It was horrible. There was even a story about a woman who ate her child. And, it, it, and I don't want to go into the details of all that. But it just, it was that bad. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And I won't explain what happened there, but they did. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The Romans, eventually, they breached the walls. They killed many of them and their children. Josephus puts the number at the total who who died, around 1.1 million, because of it happened during around a Passover. I think people were trapped in the city and all that type of stuff. In addition, there's 97,000 who were enslaved, and many were forced to become gladiators or to die in the arena, and all that type of stuff was going on. So this was horrible, what happened to these people. 
And Jesus said, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In Matthew 24, 2, Jesus says that not one stone would be left of the temple standing upon one another. And also, Josephus records that Caesar, when the, when, the, um, when the siege started, he didn't want the temple to be burned. It was, it was you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. Plated with gold on the outside, magnificence would shine brilliantly when you came over. Uh, it was just magnificent. He wanted to preserve that for whatever reasons he had. However, during the fighting, when they were doing the cities, the soldiers got excited and one threw a torch inside and it started to catch things on fire. Eventually, they broke through into the temple. They started taking all the stuff out, which later they went and minted coins that basically just said, um, out, out of the precious metals of the city, they went and minted coins that basically said, uh, what was it, uh, Judea was, was conquered. I mean, they took the most sacred thing to them and made it common currency so that everybody would know that, that, that they got destroyed. But they threw the, the thing and it caught on fire and eventually what happened is it, it got so hot that it melted the gold and it got in between the stones. And so in order to get to the gold, what did they have to do? To tear apart the stones. So they tore apart the stones and not one stone was left upon another. The reason that all this happened was because Jesus says they did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Or they did not recognize the time of your visitation, as other translations say. They had all the scriptures, church, right? They, they had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had the religious system, but they missed Jesus. They missed Jesus. I find it amazing that it was all laid out for them in Scripture in the book of Daniel. And yet they missed him as a nation. They missed the day that he was supposed to come in. They should have known that this was the day. And in and, and Daniel goes on to say that he would be killed. And if they had read the Scriptures, if they had known their Bible, they would have known that the very day that Christ came into the temple. In Daniel 9, uh, sorry, that, that Christ came into Jerusalem, it was all laid out. In Daniel 9, 24 through 26, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel a timeline for the nation of Israel. And in verse 25, he says, Know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. If you have a New King James Version or another version of the Bible like that, you, it'll say weeks. And that's a sad translation because weeks means groups of seven. That's what it means. And what it's saying is years. There'll be groups of seven years. And so he lays out this timeline. When Daniel's in captivity, the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, in modern-day Iraq, for 70 years. And during that time, Daniel receives a prophecy from Gabriel, an angel, and says that when this, time, when this event happens, when an order and a decree goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, from that time forth, it starts a time, uh, a time a countdown, basically. 483 years later, you're going to see that the Messiah is going to walk into Jerusalem from that day. There are many who try to calculate it and all that type of stuff, but in general... It was March 14th, 445 B.C. when King Artaxerxes gave the decree to Nehemiah to go 
rebuild the, the temple. And for, you get 483 years later, and it comes to April 6, 32 AD. And Christ comes over the hill. And Jesus wept bitterly because they did not recognize the day of their, visit, of their visitation and because they did not recognize as the Lamb who would take away their sins of the world. Forty years later, they fell brutally as a nation at the hands of the Romans. Judgment doesn't always come immediately. There's even a delay in it. But there's a great danger Don't you see as you read this with me as well? Can you feel the application coming out already? There's a great danger of being called the people of God by his name, having the building, having the songs, having the Bible in front of us, having all the the functions, (laughs) as Brad pointed out. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You know? You have all those things the festivals, pointing to Jesus, but totally missing him. That is a danger. And brothers and sisters, I also praise God that many of you have not missed the day of your visitation. Amen? You have not missed it. That the day that you knew that you needed to be saved, not from Rome, not from your circumstances, from yourself and from your sin and from death. The day that Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, walked into your life on that donkey of peace and said, I have a, I have a deal for you. Surrender all, and I'll wipe away your sin. Believe upon me and my blood, and you go free. You didn't miss that day. He didn't dismiss God because he didn't change your circumstance, but he saved your soul, your eternal destination. You saw him as that lamb that was slain for you, and you put his blood on the doorpost of your life, and the judgment of God has now passed over you. Praise the Lord. You have not missed it. Praise God that you received the king on the donkey of peace rather than the king who will return and by force everyone will declare in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Praise God that you do it today willingly. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Yes. Praise God that you did not miss the day of your visitation. And now you get to spread that good news, that message that you received to others, that you've been entrusted with, amen? While the king is away. While the king is away. So that others won't miss it too, amen? And if you're here this morning and perhaps like the Jews, you've, you've been looking for a savior of your circumstances. God, why don't you heal me? God, why don't you take this away? God, why don't you make this better? God, we're tired of the Rome in my life. Come, come rescue me from that. And you're expecting him to do what he might not do, what he did not come to do the first time. You might miss him. But if by God's spirit and by his grace you are hearing today that you know 
that the core thing is you need to be saved from your sin, that you violated God's law. And you know you, it's just a matter of time before the Titus surrounds you and your day is done and the destruction comes. If you know that, if the Holy Spirit's pricked your heart with that, don't miss the day. Cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. Forgive me. I appropriate your blood. I believe that you die on the cross for my sins. You are the lamb who's covered my sins. You for me. Do that and you will avoid the wrath of God and you will not only avoid the wrath of God but you'll become a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God into the family and the great grace that is now yours in Christ Jesus is amazing. So how does that happen? It's really simple, church, and this is the gospel that we preach is we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin specifically. We confess our sin to God and we turn from it and turn towards God. And we believe that he died on the cross and rose again on the third day and through that new life, we also have new life. So believe, confess, repent, and believe. (laughs) That's it. And you are saved. And the next step is obviously that public declaration that you're his, that that has happened, which is baptism, an inward sign, uh, I'm sorry, an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism doesn't save. It's a, it's a public symbol of what Christ has done already for you. He's washed you. And as you go into the water, your old life is gone because you died with him. And be, when you come out of the water, you have new life because Jesus rose again from the dead and he empowers you by the Holy Spirit to live the life you could never live. It's a life by faith. And so brothers and sisters, we live in expectation of the second coming of the king as we sang about earlier. Maybe it would be a bride waiting for you. Right? We've been entrusted with the peace offering to give to the lost. You are his precious bride who is waiting for him, but also you are the farmers that go out into the field and cast the seed. The gospel, the good news to go into people's hearts. And I pray that we would spread it far and wide so that others will see him and receive him and have an eternal life as well. And I think what Brad shared earlier is, is true. We, we are sleepy and may God wake us up May there be a fire in our church. And and what I'm nervous about, at least in my way, is that we manufacture fruit. And we we kind of sense this in our life groups right now. We know that God requires something of us and we want to do something, but it also has to be led by the Spirit. So there's this tension, right? We need to pray. And I'm saying this as we, meaning me. We need to pray. Amen? That we would not be operating in the power of our flesh and go, look, God, bless it. You know, like, what color car do you want, God? Here's the sovereign choice. But what do you want? Amen? And in just seeking him. So I would encourage you as you gather together this week is to spend time in prayer just asking for his will, praising his name, loving him, and just asking for his presence and, and just his joy into your, into your life and that what we do would not be manufactured, but it would be fruit. Amen? Fruit, not 
some object that we've manufactured. Fruit comes from being abiding. And so I don't know how many of you need, need that word. Anybody else? Nice, seven, eight of us. The rest of you, please help us. I know. So let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you that you were even merciful and gracious while you were walking, you were riding over that hill and you came down and you knew what would happen and yet you mercifully uh, didn't judge everybody at that point. You still offered yourself as a peace offering. Even to those who were hypocrites in their praise or misdirected, Lord, and when we're full of those situations in our own hearts. And so we ask that you come in and clarify, Lord, where we're off, where we've missed you. And I pray for someone this morning who does not know you and who just got introduced to you and they realize they need you. And I pray right now they would call out to you and and just say, Lord, forgive me. I believe in you. Forgive me. And, And I choose to repent and follow you. And I pray this right now that you would bring them into the fellowship of the Father. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus. We await your return. And we long to be that people who just live out what we preach. So we invite you here, Lord Jesus, into our lives this week. Flow. In your name we pray. Amen.